You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, uh, hashtag shit going on. Shit going on indeed. After, Maybe even too much shit going on. After a couple of very slow weeks in the mixed martial arts world, business picked up, as the venerable Jim Ross might say, these last couple of weeks with a, a bevy of fight bookings. Uh, a UFC event that I think was noteworthy because it turned out to be good and not crappy. Some weird shit. Lots of weird shit happening on the fringes, around the periphery, I guess you would say. Just a real feast or famine, this sport, is it not? It do- it does seem like it's all or nothing. Yeah. And, you know, there are times when the weird shit blurs into the good shit, and I don't even know what shit I prefer anymore. You don't even know which shit you're watching. That's right. I don't know which shit is up. That that one doesn't really work. No, but it's I think you. People, you feel me though. You people, get what I'm saying. People understand where you were coming from. Yeah, there. Yeah, they do. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you by Fulton and Rourke. Normally at this time of the show, Ben and I spend a minute or two telling you about Fulton and Rourke and why it's the flagship sponsor of the CME and why you should support them for their support of us. This week, we don't have to do that since friend of the podcast and self-proclaimed 2016 MMA Journalist of the Year, Suzanne Davis, wrote in and did it for us. That's right, Chad. Suzanne hit us up this week to provide a testimonial. I told you last week that she said she had some en route to her man friend, Dr. Vett. Mm-hmm. She, she confirmed that this week. Her email reads, and I quote, Dear Dudes, that's us. I can confirm that my man friend, Dr. Vett, has both received his Fulton and Rourke order and put it to good use. The FNR shaving cream does provide a smoother, closer, and according to him, more comfortable shave. Also, two thumbs up for Chad's suggestion of Tybee as a solid cologne fragrance. That's right, fool. The real winner, though, was the Escalante. 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 The Italian bergamot and balsam, balsam could be identified right away. The vetiver, well, at first, Dr. Vett thought it might have been Dominican vetiver. What adult! That vetiver was obviously from somewhere closer to Port-au-Prince, so suck it, Santo Domingo. Don't come back and you can produce a vetiver at least half as good as the Haitian shit. I mean, have some goddamn respect for yourself, bro. Dudes, get some Escalante, Escalante. Escalante. in your life. It's a free ticket to third base. I want to clarify there, those are Sudan Davis's words, even the third base. Editors note, the CME podcast cannot confirm that Fulton and Rourke products will get you to third base, whatever that means these days. Nor do we suggest getting to third base is even advisable in some situations. All we're saying is that Fulton and Rourke products are awesome, and now you don't have to take only our words for it. Whatever else you people do in your own homes is strictly your business. But... As you probably already know, Fulton & Rourke is currently offering a new promo code just for CME listeners. Go to the website FultonAndRourke.com, that's R-O-A-R-K, and enter the promo code CME2016, all one word, and get $15 off any purchase of $75 or more. 
three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one. So now we will have a discussion about the historical significance of Mark Hunt, I guess. I guess. And in round number two, all right, Neil Magny, we give up. You're legit. And in round number three, look, it was short notice. One guy was winning. Then he got tired, got busted up, and lost. And that's why I support a rematch between Conor McGregor and Chad Mendez. All that, plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff this week? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Nick in Missoula, friend of the podcast, Nick Jenkins. Okay. Writes in, So, I'm no fan of Misha Tate, but was struck when both of you, or just Chad, dot, 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 it was probably just Chad, declared that Holly Holm was still the better fighter after their UFC 196 scrap. It left me wondering what, quote-unquote, better fighter means. If I start a fight with someone and then lose the fight, am I not the worst fighter? And if a better fighter is not determined... By if the better fighter is not determined by a definitive finish, then why the hell are we holding fights in the first place? What's the damn point? I get when there's a draw or some fluke of luck or even just a really close fight uh, that we can be left with questions, but this seems like a pretty clear-cut case of Misha figuring out where the fight needed to go, taking the fight there, and winning the fight. Am I way off base here? Does Misha need to win the fight on the feet to be the better fighter? Explain yourselves! Exclamation point. Classic Nick Jenkins email right Classic there. Nick Jenkins, but also, I would say, a classic co-main event podcast situation where I don't remember saying this. Did I, I rem- say this? Okay, I remember... Posing the question to you after the the Misha Tate Holly Holm fight, saying, "Okay, Misha Tate figured out a way to win it. Looked like it was not going to go her way. She found a way to get it to the mat, won it there in the in the final throws of the the fight there. And I asked you, are you convinced that Misha Tate is the better okay. fighter? So you got me in trouble by asking me kind a of. pointed and borderline unfair question. Yeah, yes. Uh, and I I don't recall the exact wording of your answer because I'm half drunk when I do this all the time. But you said something to the effect of maybe you were not convinced. Right, that, yeah, I would probably stand by that. Misha as an Tate answer. was the better fighter. But he does raise a good point that if we can't use the result of the fight to determine who the better fighter is, what are we doing? Right. And this was not a situation where uh you know, one lucky punch lands out of nowhere after you've been getting your ass kicked for fourteen minutes. It was you were not necessarily getting your ass kicked, but you weren't winning. Until you could get it to the mat, and then you got it to the mat when you absolutely had to and just capitalized on it. So, I don't know. Because it does feel like if you want to take that and say, Holly Holm's still the better fighter, what you're really saying is Holly Holm's the better fighter as long as she can keep it standing. Holly Holm's a better fighter on the feet. She wasn't the better fighter all around. She wasn't even the enough of the better fighter to keep it from getting to the mat, even when she knew that she did not want to be there with Misha Tate. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like maybe this is deserved, uh, comeuppance for us here for not fully appreciating what it means to be the better fighter. Yeah, I well, let me say two things. For starters, I don't want to take anything away from Misha Tate because oh, that's a sign he's going to take her, something away her from performance her. Performance was 
amazing, right? All she, due respect. She got it done at the end. She she won the fight. She became the UFC women's bantamweight champion and and fulfilled her dream of doing that uh, with the kind of like gutty performance that has typified her last several octagon appearances. Is this where you're going to take away from her? No. The second thing. Comes. The second thing is that I totally see all of the logic of what friend of the podcast Nick Jenkins is saying here. I f- I feel like he raises a lot of valid points. I feel like you just made a lot of valid points. And I guess I would only say in response that I still feel like this sport particularly is such a unique animal and so weird that a lot of the aftermath of a fight and indeed like how a fighter is viewed by history is still pretty subjective no matter what happens. And indeed, wins and losses at the end of the day don't always... Uh, tell the entire story of like who who is the better fighter if that's what we're talking about because as we've said on this show before the light heavyweight mind puzzle list these three fighters from greatest to least great and the three fighters are randy couture rampage jackson and chuck liddell right now if you're just listing those fighters according to wins and losses rampage jackson would be number one chuck liddell would be number two and Randy Couture would be number three. But I would suggest that anyone who actually watches mixed martial arts would say, that's fucking crazy. <laughs> right? Okay. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, and But I guess one of the questions is, if we don't feel like just actual fight outcomes are enough of a metric to, to tell us stuff, then what else do we have? Uh, I mean, I think you can. Look, it's easier to look back years later at guys uh, who's... You know, the writing in the book of their careers has basically been done and kind of put a, put it all in perspective. But when everybody's still active and we still know that there are more fights to come, probably even more fights between these same people, you know, what do we have if we don't have the outcome? But I, th- I do agree that in this sport, because it's weird and weird things can happen, uh, it is tough to use that alone. And I remember having this conversation with Greg Jackson about, you know, how much stock do you put in the actual outcome of the fight as a, pass-fail test to tell you whether what you've been doing is right, uh, either with this fighter or just in general. Like, how do you, how much do you put the actual, what, you know, what went down in the Wikipedia box, how much does that actually count? Uh, and he was saying, you know, you, you, it's not perfect, but at some, to some extent, it's all you have. Um, but you really have to take it on a case-by-case basis and think about, like, are you a better fighter at the, at the end of that? Uh, than you were beforehand. Are you moving in the right direction, basically? Um, I don't know. Are, are we really saying we? if we think they fight 10 more times, we think Holly Holmes wins eight of them? Is that what we're saying? That's a high number, especially since she just lost the one fight they did have. <laughs> okay. But, like, I would feel, like, if you put it into a computer simulation, Holly Holm probably wins seven times out of ten. Don't you think? Like, she won most of this fight. That's the thing that, that... Except for every single second that it was on the mat. Yeah, but I mean, most of it wasn't on the mat. Most of it was on the feet, and it was on the feet because Holly Holm kept it there. But, I mean, that's also uh, a reminder of what's been true in mixed martial arts since the beginning, and that is the best skill you can possibly have is the ability to dictate where a fight is, where a fight is contested. And if you can keep it where you're strong, you'll probably win. And indeed, much of the history of mixed martial arts says that grapplers have an advantage because 
Um, just like in this fight, Holly Holm can win to 24 minutes of it or whatever, 20 minutes of it. And, you know, Misha Tate gets two takedowns or gets on Holly Holm's back a couple of times and, and it's over and she wins. And that's fine. I, I mean, uh, everyone who I think listens to this show knows that my personal, uh, taste is the two like, I like grapplers. I think that that's awesome. But I also think that, you know, in a fight where you don't win most of it and then pull off a, a, a submission near the end, I also don't think that that is fully like substantive evidence that you are the better of those two fighters. Okay. Uh, fair enough. I do think though it matters what submission you get. Cause I think it's one thing if, uh, you know, you're getting your ass kicked. The other person tries to take you down at the end to score points and you get a guillotine. You know, one of those submissions that maybe can be a little more luck. You throw up an arm bar off your back and they're slow to react. When you take somebody down, climb on their back, sink the choke, stay on there despite all their best efforts to get rid of you. I mean, you can't, re- that's not like throwing a lucky punch. That is a series of things that you did that all you, you had to execute well to get to a certain goal that you set in mind beforehand and you got there and you deserve that credit. Yeah. Now we're getting awfully ticky tack. Yeah, we are. I would say like, Thanks a lot, Nick Jenkins. If you, if you and I had a grappling match. Oh yeah. Right, let's, right let's, here. Let's do it. Let's do it right now. On the floor now. of my kitchen. And, and I like I, this idea. Let's I put have, 50 bucks on it. And I knew one Brazilian Jiu Jitsu trick and you didn't know that I knew it. And I managed to beat you. With it already into a highly speculative fictional world. Yes, where this this would not happen, but let's say it did. Let's say I got you, motherfucker. <laughs> would that then mean, by this logic, that I am the better Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu grappler than Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu purple belt Ben Folks? Yeah, I mean, See, because that's kind of what you're saying, right? What I'm saying is that shit wouldn't happen, so we wouldn't have to worry about it. <laughs> That's it. That's all you got. You're not going to engage in that speculative. I can't. I cannot suspend my disbelief that much. Well, someday it's going to. I'm going to buy a BJ Penn instructional tape. I'm going to learn one trick. Are you, you're going to get, get it on VHS. I'm going to get you. Uh, yep. I'm going to get it on tape. VHS cassette tape unless I can find it on Laserdisc. <laughs> Next question is: week comes from Craig the Terror, and he writes: Why are we so obsessed with the MMA in New York? It must mean something more than it does, but I'm not sure what. Are we as fans merely mindless pawns on someone else's political chessboard? It just seems like the whole thing is more trouble than it's worth. I have no problem with Jersey! Exclamation point. And then. Uh, emoji with the tongue sticking out, right? Yeah. Colon P, lowercase P. Yes. Interested in your thoughts, says Craig the Terror. Can I uh, just say, first of all, uh, channel a little Denzel when I say to Craig the Terror, my man. That's, I mean, yeah, we're on the record with this, right? The, He's speaking the most, my language. The most overreported story in mixed martial arts is the fight to legalize MMA in New York. Because as I've said in this show, on this show in the past, the MMA glitterati in their high-priced condos on the East Coast with their East Coast bias. And frankly, there is, there's rumors at foot, there's news at foot that maybe this week the New York State Assembly will finally legalize mixed martial arts in that state. And the best outcome of that would be that we could stop fucking talking about legalizing MMA in New York. Everybody just shut up about it. I agree, though. I mean, I guess I cared about it back when it was still kind of a new issue, back when everybody else was legalizing MMA and regulating it, or at least moving swiftly in that direction. And New York was one of the most high-profile holdouts, and you had guys like Bob 
was it Bob O'Reilly or Bob Riley? I, I even interviewed the guy. He was a state assemblyman from New York, and his opposition to it when he explained it was just stupid. And it was just like every bad anti-MMA argument you heard throughout the 2000s, uh, you know, pre-Ultimate Fighter era MMA all rolled into one and you'd knock one down and he'd just pull up another one. And they were all just nonsensical. Uh, and yeah, back then it was like, okay, this is ridiculous. Why, why would a state like New York want to be the holdout on this? But then it just dragged on and we kept hearing, this is the year, this is the year, this is the year that I too, like Craig, the terror was just like, wait a minute, why do we care so much? It's just one state. I get that there's a lot of people living in that state and there's a huge, uh, important city in that state still don't care that much. It would be cool to have an MMA event in Madison Square Garden, but that's about as far as it goes for me, is it would be cool. And if the worst thing that has, has to happen to these glitterati in their condos, uh, which is apparently how we imagine them living, uh, that they have to head to New Jersey, go to Newark, just to see some live MMA, then boo-hoo. I'm not feeling too bad for you. Plus, yeah. they do have MMA in New York. I've, I've been to an MMA event in, in the, in the gym in Queens that I used to do jujitsu at, where they would have those underground fights. They were sloppy and a mess for a bunch of reasons that Jim Genia has detailed very well, uh, over the years. Um, but it's not like it's just some fascist blackout of MMA in New York, even. Yeah. Philosophically, I understand. And as a guy who re- makes his living writing about mixed martial arts, I understand how it can be awkward if the sport that you like compete in and or cover is not legal everywhere in your country, right? Like having mixed right. martial arts be illegal in New York, uh, is, is awkward and it helps, I think, in like the most tangential arm's length way possible legitimize the sport if it's legal in all places. But it's gone on. That's the point, though, is that it's gone on for so long that now it's New York that looks ridiculous in this and not MMA that is tarnished by it at all. Like, we passed that point a few years ago. Yeah, maybe that's true. Like, if you got on SportsCenter and told a bunch of people on there, like, hey, did you guys know that MMA, this thing we report on sometimes and that we'll talk about when there's a big fight coming up, did you know it's not even legal in New York? Like, that would be just a surprise to a lot of people. Yeah, it probably would. Uh, you know, and like in a, a, a symbolic way, New York is the biggest market in the United States. The, there's a lot of hit fight sports history at Madison Square Garden. It would be a big deal for the UFC to be able to get in there and, and do an event at Madison Square Gardens, do a, a, an event at the Barclay Center in, in Brooklyn. Uh, and that's kind of, but that's kind of where it ends for me, right? Especially since I think as we've said on the show before, if you are sitting at home watching the, the UFC on television, like, you don't give a fuck where it is, for the most part, unless it affects the time that the event begins on your television. Because it's not like baseball. It's not like if they're playing in San Francisco, there's a different vista than if they're playing, uh, at, you know, in New York. Uh, it all looks the same. So it doesn't matter where it is. But I suppose if you're a fan who lives in New York and you, you want to go see the M, the UFC at Madison Square Garden or Barclay Center or whatever, uh, then maybe it's important to you, but it is like as an as an issue overall, overdone, way by, overdone by our East Coast friends, the in glitterati the, in the media. Yeah, condos. That's just how you imagine them living, huh? A bunch of condos. Yeah, probably in Williamsburg the, or the some shit. Occasional townhouse, looking out over the river. Next question this week comes from Ryan Kane in New York. Oh, God damn it. He writes, I guess hashtag ain't shit going on turned into hashtag 
ain't shit going on. All shit going oh, on. Oh, all shit going on. Great week for MMA news. My question is regarding the news of Rory McDonald's impending free agency. Do you think Rory win or lose against Wonderboy would be a bigger potential loss for the UFC than Bendo? I think so. Benson Henderson was a former UFC champion and his move to Bellator was big for them. However, Rory will be only 27 at the time of his free agency and he is a legitimate top three welterweight in the UFC. I assume his leverage with the UFC will be altered one way or another after his uh we're gonna break all we're gonna break all of our shit fight with wonder boy if i'm bellator i'm sliding a blank check per se for rory please discuss if you would be so kind uh i wrote about this last week on bleacher report but yes rory mcdonald is the biggest prize to hit the free agent market in mixed martial arts uh maybe ever but at least at least since like the fall of pride because there was a lot of a lot of guys crossed from the UFC and went to Pride back in those days. I don't know that you could rightly call it, quote-unquote, free agency. Uh, but certainly since the idea of free agency began to, to take hold and have purchase in, in MMA, uh, Rory McDonald is the biggest guy to potentially jump ship. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Well, I think a lot also depends on the outcome of this fight with Stephen Thompson. If he goes in there and he does indeed break Stephen Thompson's whole shit, uh, he's in a really good negotiating position. And he's not somebody that you can just play the game of like, well, we'll let him go and we'll just shit talk him all the way out the door. And the entire time he is going off to sign with somebody else, uh, we'll just be talking about how he was never that good anyway. Because then you've got, you know, a guy who you were looking at as a possible future champion. Uh, he had that great fight with Robbie Lawler. He goes on there and, and beats another guy you're looking at as a possible future title contender and, and Steven Thompson. It's a lot harder to just say, well, he wasn't that good. We want guys who are headed up the ladder and not down the same thing that they always like to play with guys who end up going and sign somewhere else. Um, you just, it starts to ring more and more hollow the more times you hear it, especially when you hear about guys where it clearly doesn't apply. So, yeah, he will have a, a whole lot of leverage, and it will be really interesting to see what the UFC does there with him. Uh, I like, though, we've been talking about this for a while. He has been kind of vocal, more vocal than he is usually about anything, right. uh, in talking about why he wants to test a, the free agency waters, why he's a little bit unhappy with his compensation and how he's been taken care of, and maybe he doesn't feel the, like he got the gratitude he thought he was owed uh, for what he did in the UFC so far. And that, I think, is a result of just this slow push in that direction from a bunch of fighters where once some people start talking out about it, they start maybe testing the free agency waters, maybe going signing over with somebody else like Bellator, maybe staying in the UFC. But either way, it just starts to become more and more common, and there's less of a fear or a stigma about being honest about that and talking about it openly. Um, and I, I think that that... Stuff like this is the end result. I think if Roy McDonald's in the same position you know, three years ago, you don't hear him quite so vocal about this issue. Yeah, up until this point, even though maybe we didn't fully have a reason to think this, I would describe him as a company guy, wouldn't you? Like kind of a good soldier for the UFC. Like this is the this is the first time that I can think of Rory McDonald kind of like coming out in like airing a grievance. That I can remember anyway. Well, just because he seems so like flat personality-wise that he becomes kind of a blank canvas that you can project anything you want onto. But you know what, though? Uh, I wrote about Matt Mitrione today after talking to him about why he went to Bellator and everything. And you can you hear this from a bunch of fighters, though, where he was kind of pinpointing, okay, here's the moment where I realized you got to look out for yourself because when it suits the company, they'll – 
turn their back on you or, you know, they'll, they'll throw you under the bus or they'll just basically not show you the gratitude you thought that you had earned. And you hear that over and over again from a bunch of fighters. And yet it seems to be a lesson that everybody has to kind of learn for themselves. Uh, and they get it in their heads that, okay, we're kind of working with the UFC. Like John Jones used to say, I thought they were my partners. That kind of, and well, you, because for- that's what they tell them. Well, that's, that's what they're what, told. That's what they tell them when it suits them is right. that, Hey, we want guys who want to work with us. How many times has Dana White said that? But, you know, it's still a company. Like, they they want to get you as cheaply as they can to make as much money as they can off of you. Uh, that's just the way it works. You have to be the one looking out for you because they're not going to do it. And I think that for a lot of fighters, that's that continues to come as new information. Yeah, I think it would be incredibly meaningful and potentially a landmark happening if the UFC lets a fighter of the caliber and in the position of Rory McDonald walk away. Because as Ryan Kane notes in his email, he says Royal Mc, Rory McDonald's will be 27 once his free agency arrives. Uh, yeah, he's, he's not, he doesn't even turn 27 until late July. So he's 26 years old right now and 18 and three overall. And those losses ain't nothing to sneeze at. He no. lost to, to the champion Robbie Lawler twice, most recently at UFC 189, uh, BT dubs 2015 fight of the year. And, uh, previous to that, his only loss is to Carlos Condit, the former, uh, interim welterweight champion and Roy McDonald was what like 15 yeah that fight yeah and he was winning that too wasn't he and then yeah, yeah he was. Like came back and stopped him late in the third kind of a youthful error on his part he was not actually 15 I'm exaggerating to make a well, point that fight was in 2010 so six years ago so he was 20 <laughs> yeah uh just a fresh-faced kid compared to after the post Robbie Lawler facial features he's got going on and I think you're right that like he the thing that uh Rory McDonald alluded to when he was on the Fortnite with with Ariel Helwani was like he just had this championship fight that was the 2015 fight of the year got his whole shit broke in a lot of ways uh and i think the the implication is that he looked at his bank account afterwards and was kind of like oh wait a second like i just spent years and years like doing all these favors for my employer and i finally got as close as i might ever get to the top of my class and i'm not super rich or like i don't feel financially stable even uh and I think that that can be a watershed moment for a smart guy who understands that his uh, he's got a short window to capitalize on athlete, on his athletic talents, uh, and maybe he will. I would I mean I would say most likely Rory McDonald ends up staying in the UFC, but I mean just because of his position in the company and his age, it would like I said it would be a pretty big deal for the UFC to let somebody like that walk away. But this is one where it also made me wonder, as I guess it has been the trend. Like, are we going to see, is this going to become just business as usual for all these top fighters to fight out the remainders of their, of their fight contracts and test their worth on the free agent market? Because like I said, like I wouldn't, I would not have thought that this would be a thing that Rory McDonald would do. Uh, and, and hearing him announce that he's going to hit the free agent market makes me wonder, like, are we going to have a free agent flood in this sport soon? Well, I think soon we will. what will happen is we'll reach the upper limit of the number of guys Bellator is prepared to absorb into the roster. I think sometimes people assume that everybody could just jump ship and go over there and Bellator would want them all, and they, they can't really do that. I don't think Bellator could, even if they wanted to, uh, absorb all those guys who might be thinking about free agency. But I think what we are going to see and what we are seeing is just a slide toward that no longer being a sort of third rail that everyone's scared of, that right. people are talking openly about it more. Um, they're getting a little more realistic about 
looking out for themselves and, and taking care of themselves uh, and not just, hey, I'm going to go out there and can and God will and the UFC will make it right for me and, and money will just magically show up in my hand. I think that that old way of thinking is fallen by the wayside a little bit more. Uh, and so we'll, we'll see more people test it out. They might not all like the way it goes for them, but I think it is and should probably just become a little bit more business as usual the way it is in other sports. Yeah, it's not a golden ticket to riches, certainly, as you know, se- several people I think have found out so far. But Bellator is also not the only destination. It's the, it's the main destination at this point, but, you know, uh, Ben Askren seems pretty happy in one FC. There were reports during the Ben Henderson free agency that Road FC offered him a big contract. Uh, and, you know, you got Ryzen, even though there were some, uh, reports as to perhaps its financial instability already, but, but there are numerous different places that guys could land, although obviously Bellator is the, is the biggest one. All right, last question this week comes from friend of the podcast, Marco Bucci. Big week this week for friends of the podcast. You know what it is? It's a sign that we are just a couple of friendly motherfuckers. We made a lot of friends out there. He writes, Denizens of the Dundas Kitchen Table. In the days of UFC 100, the company's matchmaking, matchmaking hinged on the question, who is the best fighter in the world? But between UFC 100 and UFC 200, it feels as though the matchmaking has taken a turn for the myopic. The UFC often seems dispassionate about discovering who the best fighter is, or worse, it takes measures to avoid the question entirely. Do you think there's any truth to this? Have we lost our way? Wow. Deep question from Marco Bucci. Big time. We probably should have done that earlier, so also, we wouldn't be pressed for time. But I think he has a... Uh, newer listeners, by the way, might not know Marco Bucci as the... The artist who created that Anderson Silva uh, portrait that we gave out uh, as part of the contest. And also, if you don't follow Marco Bucci on Instagram, you should because he's a really good artist. And every once in a while, he'll just, he'll just be like, oh, I just sat down for a minute in front of this cafe and sketched a beautiful, heartbreaking image of the street and river scene beyond it. And you're like, because I had, you know, some time to kill. Marco Bucci, thoughtful man, gentleman and a scholar, asks us, have we lost our way, Chad? Well, I mean, the match, I think the matchmaking philosophy is obviously different now, especially yes. as we head into a major, what is supposed to be a major event like UFC 200. Uh, I just looked at the card of UFC 100, which I watched at Radio City Music Hall in New York City, by the way. Oh, yeah. Closed circuit television. Did you, is that when you had to get like time off from your job at Barnes and Noble? Yep. Me and Trump went down together <laughs> to Radio City Music Hall, Bloomberg. There's, there's an agent, or there's an angle for your agent to play when your book hit the shelves. Chad Dundas, former employee of Barnes and Noble, now hits the shelves of Barnes and Noble. And MMA glitterati. Let's, let's not lose sight of what's important here. Uh, this is the card from UFC 100, the main card. Brock Lesnar versus Frank Mir for the heavyweight title was the main event. George St. Pierre against, uh, Tiago Alves was the welterweight championship co-main event dan henderson versus michael bisping john fitch versus paulo tiago and uh yoshihiro akiyama against alan belcher so it's like some big names on that card but also i think marco bucci's point is well made that like those are all competitive uh like kind of fights to appeal to the hardcore fan base really uh and then you look at ufc 200 and the rumor is we may get cm punk against mickey gall as one of the fights, and uh, we're going to rematch uh, Colin, Conor McGregor and uh, Nate Diaz, and they're talking about Cain Velasquez against Travis Brown. Um, so maybe a little an eye toward marketability a little bit more than than competition these days. Well, 
I think just in general, we have seen a little bit more of a shift toward let's find out what sells, even if it's not logically what makes the most sense in any division. And in some respects, I think that the UFC has learned a lesson from watching Bellator find success. We've talked about it before with some of the old timer stuff, realizing, okay, name value counts for a lot and just, you know, marketability counts for a lot. It doesn't always have to be number one versus number two and number three versus number four. And to some extent, I think that's good. I mean, I think that in, in a way, it represents a little bit more of an understanding of what this sport is and why people come to it, that it's not just about seeing who the best fighter in the world is all the time. I mean, that is still always, I think, going to be a part of it and should always be a part of it. Uh, but that's not all there is to it anymore. Uh, that it's, I think, maybe embracing a little bit more of its carnival roots. That it's kind of a, we got some good fights here. We got this guy who might be the best in the world. This other guy who says, no, I'm the best in the world. But also, there's a guy who's going to fight this other dude that he's just mad at. Or just wants us to believe that he's mad at. Um, and then, you know, just some weird shit between weird dudes. Uh, and altogether, it creates this conglomerate that you want to see. You're willing to pay your money to see. I don't think that's all bad. I think it's just a matter of finding the right proportion and not getting carried away in it. Yeah, we've made the point before that the UFC is a business. It is a fight promotion business. And when if you keep that first and foremost in your mind, like a lot of the things that we expect from the UFC – uh, perhaps wrongly stop to make, stop making sense, right? Or, or you, you always ask the question, like, why, why is this happening? Why isn't another thing happening? And the answer is almost always money. And I don't think, know that you can necessarily hold that against a business because the UFC is the biggest, uh, entity in mixed martial arts a long time ago. The, the idea of it also being a steward of the sport kind of got foisted on it. And to a certain extent, the UFC accepted some of that, although maybe arguably only in the ways that also benefited its, its own self. Uh, and, and in some ways, maybe the, this shift in matchmaking is just a sign that they feel like they've gotten to the point where, you know, they can just try to make money now instead of always trying to do the thing that was right for the sport. Maybe the building process has, has come to a close and now, you know, you have this existing sport that, you can promote in multiple different ways. Uh, we could add, we could talk about why the UFC is doing that, which I think could be a much longer discussion. We're sort of out of time for listener mail, but that is a good question from from Mike Marco Bucci and one that I would wager we will revisit yeah. at some point. And well, and yeah, and I think that that's the why is probably the most interesting part, and especially when you ask if it's taken a turn for the myopic, it does seem like. If you can criticize the approach for anything, it's that it's too much thought on how can we make a bunch of money next month and not necessarily how can we keep this thing growing into the next few years. Almost like the guys who own it don't expect to be around that long. Almost. Weird. Huh? Uh, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, a concern for the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You can go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss from Tuesday to Friday when we're not doing the podcast. It's short. It's humorous. We think you'll like it. If you don't, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Well, Ben, we have talked before on the podcast about how the chaotic nature of the UFC heavyweight division makes it difficult to put almost anything in historical perspective. However, I I might uh, suggest that if anyone can match the heavyweight division at large for pure chaos in his personal story, it might be Mark Hunt, a guy who, when he came to the UFC uh, in September 2010, wasn't really even wanted. The UFC tried to pay him just to just to let him out of his previous pride contract and let him go home. Uh, Mark Hunt said no, that he would rather have some fights in the octagon. He lost his UFC, UFC debut at UFC 119 to Sean McCorkle, which ran his consecutive loss streak to six in a row. But since then, he is, I believe, 7-3-1. and one with losses to Junior Dos Santos, the current champion, Fabricio Verdum, and Stipe Miocic, uh, for all intents and purposes, the number one contender uh, at the moment. Uh, he just knocked out Frank Mir on Saturday in three minutes and one second at UFC Fight Night 85 from Australia, uh, which seemed like kind of a big moment for Mark Hunt somehow. And I was wondering at this point if you have any thoughts about where Mark Hunt fits in in like the history of the UFC heavyweight division and now even MMA heavyweight history, because at this point he seems like a guy who has done an awful goddamn lot better than maybe we thought. Yeah, he does. And yet you also, you know, you look at his record just numbers wise and you realize, okay, he's still could very easily fall back below 500 before it's all over. Uh, and I don't know. It's one of these things where I felt like we, used to look at Mark Hunt and be like, one trick pony, but the one trick is pretty fun. Uh, and Mark Hunt never seemed to look at himself that way. Uh, I mean, if he did, he probably would have just taken the money that the UFC offered him to stay away. Uh, but he, and I remember him saying this years ago when I interviewed him, like, you know, probably three or four years ago, where I kind of asked him about that perception of him, that people seem to really like him. They like to watch him fight. Uh, they regard him as a tough guy who can take a hell of a punch and knock you out with one blow but they don't seem to regard him as a great mixed martial arts fighter. Uh, and I was kind of asking him if he was okay with that. And he was bewildered that I would even need to ask. That, of course, he wanted to be the best fighter in the world and thought that he was on his way to becoming the best fighter in the world. And it was only a matter of getting the opportunity to prove it. And it seems like people have been really slow to come around to that same idea about him. And for some reason, like, we don't have a problem thinking that, you know, we talked about, like, a guy like Roy McDonald earlier in the show. Of course, Roy McDonald is trying to prove that he's the best 170-pounder in the world. And that's what his focus is on, not just on being a tough guy who could do tough guy stuff and be fun and cool to watch. But for some reason with Mark Hunt, maybe just because of the way his career started and how he was anything but a well-rounded mixed martial artist uh, way back in the Pride days, it has it has been a slow realization for us that he even wants to do that, that he even thinks of himself that way. Well, yeah, I mean, from 2006 to 2010, like I said, he lost six fights in a row. And at this point, the guy is 41 years old. Uh, I think that it's obvious and you can understand why spectators would look at him and, and not uh, take him seriously as uh, one of the best martial artists in the world. At the same time, like Mark Hunt is a professional athlete and he has that, professional athlete, professional fighter mentality where, of course, he wants to be the best in the world. And, of course, he considers himself one of the best in the world. Uh, and I think 
over time, despite that record, which at this point is just 12, 10, and 1 overall, uh, he's kind of proven that at least in this division, he can be one of the best in the world. And I hope that we don't forget how at UFC 180, when he fought Fabricio Verdum for that interim heavyweight title, he was kind of winning that fight for a while until he got knocked out with a flying knee, of all things, in the second round. So, like, you're talking about a dude that, like, put on a, a pretty good performance in his fight for the UFC heavyweight title. Uh, and at this point, I would say a guy who at 41 years old, maybe because of his style, which is essentially all he has to do is stop you from taking him down. Which and, he's gotten much better at over the years. Yeah, and he looked good doing it against Frank Mir this weekend. Not that Frank Mir is known for his lightning-fast takedowns. but Did not look great doing it against Stipe Miocic. But. No. <laughs> but, the, you know, I would say that that Mark Hunt style is one that ages kind of well. You know, he can punch you behind your ear and stop you from taking him down probably for a few more years, I would think, if, yeah. he, if he wants to do that. Yeah, that's true. Uh, power is one of those last things to go that we see, and it's not like he relies on just raw blazing speed. And as we've talked about before, if you want to be in a division where you can hang around well into your 40s, heavyweight's the place for you. It's not like there are a ton of young bucks just charging up the heavyweight rankings, uh, trying to knock off these old guys. It's like you're going to be 42-year-olds very soon, Mark Hunt, and the when you go up against a young whippersnapper, he's going to be like 34. So it's not that's not a huge concern in right. the in the heavyweight class. But as far as you know, when you hear him talk about what he thinks is next, and he's talking about rematches with the dudes who beat him, guys like Fabricio Verdum and Junior Dos Santos, and you get the sense that the UFC is still looking at him and thinking like, "All right, we see you as a fun fight kind of guy, Mark. Um, you can." You can headline some fight night card. If we go to Australia, we'll call you. If we go to Japan, we'll call you. Uh, but as far as, you know, headlining a major pay-per-view uh, in a big-time serious heavyweight contenders fight, they really have to have their arms twisted a little bit to even think of him that way. Yeah, I guess lucky for him, he's in a division that almost exists almost entirely at this point to put on fight night main events in international locations right that's basically what the heavyweight division is if you take away like the two or three guys at the top of the of the rankings and in in terms of mark hunt i wonder if it is both a uh a situation where he came into his own as a mixed martial artist but also serendipitously like the heavyweight division kind of receded to his level or, or not necessarily to his level but like uh, there just aren't a lot of young whippersnappers, like you said, in this division. It's not like he's out there having to fight the Jake Matthews of the world, right? Like he right. can still make a good living out there fighting Frank Mir, who's a guy that clearly he matches up well against if he can can keep the the fight where he is strong. Can we spare a few words here for Frank Mir now that we're we're talking about the dude who, as Mark Hunt put it, uh, was in the dark lands after he landed that right hand on him uh, and did his usual Mark Hunt walk off thing on him. Uh, it seems like this was the one that prompted a lot of people to look at Frank Mir and say, all right, man, maybe this is the time for you to think about trying to do some commentator work, trying to get out of the actual head-punching game because it doesn't seem to be going well. And you can see why. I mean, with this one, he's lost what, six of his last eight, I believe. Um, and you you think, all right, you've been a UFC heavyweight champion. Doesn't look like that's going to happen again. 
He's, you know, compared to Mark Hunt, who is almost 42, will be 42 here in a couple of days. Frank Mir at 36 is almost a young whippersnapper of the division age-wise, but yet he's been in the game for so long that there's an awful lot of mileage on there. Is this the point where Frank Mir should think about retiring? Probably a loaded question, but, you know, probably. Like you said, he's 2-6 and six in his last eight fights, which I think gets him dates him back to uh, 2012. Uh, so a, a long run of, of more losses than wins for Frank Mir at this point. And Frank Mir is one of those guys that probably could find himself something else to do, uh, because he is very articulate and, and, you know, has a, a, a presence about him that I think, uh, play, would play well on television if you could polish him up, you know, just a little bit around the edges. Uh, and, but like, again, Frank Mir is one of those dudes where, uh, his vision of himself is probably not the same as our vision of him. Like he's a guy who has been a lifelong martial artist and, and uh, has considers himself to be one of the most dangerous men in the world in his own words. And so, uh, you know, you'd like to think that, that Frank Mir walks away with his wits intact and, and finds himself something else to do, but whether or not that's actually what Frank Mir does is probably Another question entirely. He's also not too long ago talking about how he needed to win a fight so he could justify to his to his wife that he keeps going to the gym every day. Yeah, maybe uh, Jenny Mir is going to step in and say enough is enough. Well, yeah, I mean, you just wonder at some point, are you, and I've talked to fighters about doing this before, and some of them even know that they're doing it, and, and are you continuing to fight to put off the question of what am I going to, what is my life going to be like after I'm done fighting? I think that happens to more guys than we realize that they've just been doing it so long that, you know, of course, it's nice to get a big chunk of money all at once. Uh, it's nice to have this thing that you do that people recognize you for. But it's also it's, if it's been your life for so long, I think it gets hard to face that moment of, all right, that part of my life is over. Let's move into this unknown period of, of post fighting life. Um, and a lot of guys, I think, just keep taking fights out of momentum kind of that they they don't want to face that question or they don't they're not sure they have an answer yet and so they keep doing this. Yeah. I would think if anybody could be a successful jiu-jitsu teacher or like a jiu-jitsu coach to the stars even it would be Frank Mir, but Yeah, you'd think, right? That, that's just me. Anyway, let's do are you fucking kidding me, Ben, and then we will move on to round number 2 this week. Speaking of people who are long in the tooth, Ben, this week my are you fucking kidding me has to go to go out to Daniel Kelly, the 38-year-old Australian judo player. Play Player who uh, improved his UFC record to four and one this past weekend with a come from behind victory over Antonio Carlos Jr. Now I think in the past on this show I've probably been guilty of making fun of Dan Kelly for looking and fighting both like he competes in the UFC circa 2005, but this past Saturday while watching him bounce back to defeat Carlos Jr. by third round TKO, I realized that the very thing that makes Daniel Kelly awesome is that he is a 38-year-old guy who looks and fights like he competes in the UFC circa 2005. I mean, he goes out there with the neoprene sleeve on his knee, he's got double ankle braces, he's got a super stiff and awkward striking style backed up by his Olympic-level judo. I guess, Ben, I came to the realization... That if anybody in the UFC should be hashtag Team Dundas, it's old man Dan Kelly. Especially, especially since he seems like one of those dudes that the UFC kind of wants to get rid of, but can't. 
because he keeps going out there and winning fights that he's probably supposed to lose. So this week, are you fucking kidding me, Dan Kelly, you magnificent bastard? Welcome to Team Dundas. Are you fucking kidding me? Well, Chad, this week I'm... I have to say this came as kind of late-breaking uh, confirmation uh, for the the podcast today, but we now know what Kimbo Slice and Ken Shamrock tested positive for. And it is? You want to take a, you want to take a shot at this one? N- Nandrolone. There you go. Is that it? That's yes. it. Well, that's not... I love it when guys don't surprise me. That's not all. They both had uh, Nandrolone in the system, like you do. You got a, you got a little Nandrolone floating around in there. Free Nandrolone, right? <laughs> but Ken Shamrock also tested positive for methadone. As in the synthetic opioid uh, that they use to, to give uh, heroin addicts to help them get off of uh, opioid addiction. Guys, are you fucking kidding me? I mean, Nandrolone, for one thing, we're going straight old school. And then I mean, we're. Does that surprise you, considering the subjects? And then we're still gonna look like dog crap in the actual fights? And Ken, my man, methadone? What's going on, man? Do we need to talk? Do we need to have a sit down? Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Well, that makes it seem all the sadder that Ken Shamrock has taken methadone. Yeah. Because it's, and that's a hell of a thing to test positive for too, because you almost want to be like, is that a sign of something positive happening in your life that you're trying to move in a, in a direction away from something worse? Or is there just a great big piece of the puzzle missing here? I feel like we just descended into the dark lands, as Mark Hunt might say. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, Neil Magny and Hector Lombard took turns almost fucking killing each other in the co-main event of UFC Fight Night 85, and it started out looking like a kind of a typical Hector Lombard fight, and in a way became, in, in some sense, kind of a typical Hector Lombard fight, but he nails Neil Magny right off the bat, drops him, and then just jumps on him with these sledgehammers, hitting him all about the head, including the back of that head, uh, whenever he felt like it. And, you know, after he hit him there four or five times, the ref asked him politely to watch it, uh, which he did not appear to pay any attention to. And somehow Neil Magny survives. And am I wrong in thinking that Hector Lombard realized at around the same time that us, the viewing audience, did that this might be kind of an oh shit moment for Hector Lombard because he's doing the thing where he's really not saving anything for the swim back and just pounding the hell out of Neil Magny thinking any minute it's going to be stopped now. And it did seem like any minute it would be stopped. And then when it wasn't, and then when Neil Magny was back on his feet, bouncing around, popping that jab out, still looking fairly crisp at the end of round one, you can kind of see it on Hector Lombard's face that, oh man, this, this just turned into a shitty night of work. Yeah, I mean, if you were Hector Lombard, I could understand why you might go into a fight being like, I'll just go out there and knock him out. Because you are 34-5-1 and one in your UFC, or in your MMA career, which is pretty good marks all the way around. 
Uh, but I did feel like this loss felt in some way particularly definitive for Hector Lombard. Like he, he had dropped to welterweight in late 2013 and, and had gone undefeated there. And, you know, despite the fact that his most recent fight against Josh Berkman at UFC 182 got turned into a no contest and he got suspended after he tested positive, uh, for steroids, uh, he still had not lost at, at 170 pounds. And, and the question was, you know, can he still be the same guy after he comes back after this steroid suspension? And, and can he pick up where he left off and continue to be this force in the welterweight division? I guess the good news and bad news for Hector Lombard was, yep, still looks like exactly the same guy as he's always looked. The one of the most terrifying fighters in the world for about five minutes and then not so terrifying anymore. So I feel like this loss to Neil Magny kind of, Put a period on the end of the sentence for Hector Lombard. Like, 38-year-old dude can't, can't, you know, hang for, for three rounds. We've probably seen the best from him. But then at the same time, Neil Magny seems to just keep getting better. And he's one of those guys where when you go back and you look at his uh, early start in the UFC and you're like, man, how did the guy who is losing a decision to Seth Bozinski, uh then turn around and just get on that crazy streak you know, he gets beat by, gets submitted by Demian Maya, but so what? A lot of people are going to get submitted by Demian Maya. Now he's back on a three fight win streak, beating some good dudes and becomes the first guy to finish Hector Lombard. It may, it, it seems to me like one, a, a reminder that sometimes one of the things we do wrong is just we see a couple of fights from a guy and we label him much like you have labeled Hector Lombard right now. And we say, that's it. That's the person you are. And that's all we're prepared to think of you as. And Neil Magny is someone who has just consistently gotten better and closed the gaps in his game where he has found them. Well, the difference, obviously, between Hector Lombard and Neil Magny is that Hector Lombard is 38 and he's been around fucking forever. He's like so Chad Dundas age. I feel, sake. I feel like I'm on pretty solid ground, okay. actually, saying that, that we've seen the best of Hector Lombard. And uh, Neil Magny, on the other hand, is 28 years old and still very much an up-and-comer who is now 10-1 and one in his last 11 fights. Uh, and when you mentioned his loss to Seth Bozinski, like, not only that, but I'm pretty sure Neil Magny lost to Mike Ricci on the Ultimate Fighter season that they were on. So to say that he came into the UFC with uh, lowered expectations is is probably right. And I think that even as recently as that loss to Damian Maya last year, you could say, yeah, you know, uh, Neil Magny had transformed himself into one of these Donald Cerrone type dudes that fights all the time. And he had run off this seven fight win streak. But at the same time, he hadn't, he hadn't fought a lot of real top talent in the welterweight division. Probably the biggest name on the list of guys that he beat during that run is the Dirty Bird. Uh, so at the time, him losing to Damian Maya was kind of like seen at least as, uh, evidence that maybe he wasn't one of the elite fighters in the division. Now he's run off three wins in a row and, and two of them, albeit were split decisions, but you know, beating Eric Silva and Eric Silva, Kelvin Gaslam and Hector Lombard in a row is the kind of thing where maybe you look at that and you think, okay, then well, we can work with this. And did you see, you know, in that second round against Hector Lombard, he goes out there, gets the shit beaten out of him for most of the first round, survives it, is looking pretty good by the end of the first, definitely looking fresher when they get off the stools for the second. Uh, and then he plays around a little bit too much and Hector Lombard's range gets dropped again, then slaps on that triangle, pretty tight triangle that Hector Lombard basically had to uh, concede top position in order to get out of. And you're thinking, there's a guy that went to Demian Maia's jujitsu yes, seminar. He did. Yes, he did. He was not, he was not bullshitting about that. No. 
Uh, and I think, you know what? Here's Neil Magny's a smart dude. He's a, he's a well-rounded fighter. Uh, he's six foot three and incredibly long at welterweight. Like there, there's reason to believe that he could be, you know, a top five guy. Yeah. Well, and especially, uh, if he keeps improving at this rate and he keeps ending up in these fights where you see in that first round, there's a lot of those situations where, you know, the ref usually says, okay, you got to show me something. You got to fight back or I'm going to end it. I mean, maybe that particular ref wouldn't have based on what we saw later in the fight where he seemed to want to get Hector Lombard's skull caved in before he was going to step in there and stop it. Uh, but he, even when he knows he's right up against that line, he never stops. He, he clearly believes that he is never out of the fight and that he is always going to get back in it and get back in there and win. Uh, and, it seems like that's one of those qualities that we somehow have come to just expect as commonplace among fighters, and it's really not. It's just it's a pretty rare quality to find, especially when a dude like Hector Lombard is on top of you, just trying to hammer your face in. Uh, and he he definitely has that thing where even you saw it in that Kelvin Gastelum fight as well, where even when things are going bad, Neil Magny never seems to stop believing that he is going to win that fight. Uh, and if you can keep improving skill wise uh, as you go. And you pair it with that, you know, that can be a dangerous combination. Yeah, I mean, you, you, with that belief and his durability, uh, like Neil Magny seems like the kind of dude that take a, he takes a lick and then keeps on ticking. That's just kind of what he does. Like, I think that's a fairly potent con- combination. So I'm kind of excited to see where he goes from here. Unfortunately for him, uh, the the welterweight title picture is still a little bit murky at at this time you know we like we talked about earlier in the show Rory McDonald and Stephen Thompson are going to fight in in what could turn out to be a number 1 contender fight uh unless one of the guys leaves the promotion uh you know you've got Carlos Condit essentially saying he wants a, to rematch with Robbie Lawler or or he's going to retire uh you've got the specter of a fight between Robbie Lawler and Conor McGregor uh, kind of still hanging around, although that idea has lost a lot of the wind out of its sails. Not a whole lot of people are being spooked out by that specter these days. Let's yeah, just well, say that. Well, let's see. Uh, we'll talk about it in round three. And but, we'll see what happens. So, you know, when you mention all those guys and the, and the potential for what's going to happen in the welterweight title picture, I'd say the biggest barrier for Neil Magny right now has nothing to do with skills or ability at all. It's that when you give him the mic, the first thing he thinks to do is thank Jesus and thank everybody for coming out. And he's just a nice guy. He right. does not really stand out personality wise, which as, you know, Marco Bucci kind of alluded to in his question in today's UFC, you really have to, especially if you're in one of those divisions where there are some people who stand out and some people who have been around maybe a little bit longer than you have. You got to find a way to get people talking about you other than just what you do in a fight. That's just kind of the reality of the situation now. Yeah, uh, that could be true, although I don't think that necessarily differentiates him from a lot of guys in the sport right now. Uh, and I think maybe the best thing for Neil Magny is that coming out of this win, uh, this past weekend, it seems like I would say the most likely thing to happen for him is that he ends up fighting somebody like Tyron Woodley or Johnny Hendricks, even though Hendricks is coming off a loss, or maybe he even fights the winner of Damian Maya versus Matt Brown, which is happening next month. So it seems like Neil Magny will probably get himself into a fairly high profile fight up next. Uh, and, and you know, if he goes on doing what he's been doing and if he wins that one, uh, regardless of the fact that he doesn't necessarily bring a lot of excitement to his mic work, I think, you know, he'll be in a pretty good position. Uh, anything else you wanted to say about either Neil Magny or 
uh, Hector Lombard or well, regretted how, Steve Percival. How about Steve Percival? Was that some of the worst refereeing we've seen? Like, just when, you know, you can almost forgive him since Neil Magny survived in the first round and it seemed like he thought, okay, I want to give Hector Lombard the same chance to survive in the second round. But when the dude is laying there belly down and he's just holding his hands up like earmuffs on the side of his head while the other dude is just taking turns punching him equally in both sides of his skull while he glances up occasionally at you like, are you seeing this? I don't know what we're doing there. That's just not intelligent defense. It, we're just waiting it out. Yeah, every, I don't like to pile on referees technically or typically, but this one seemed like a particularly grievous situation with Steve Percival, as I would say was borne out by the stats afterwards when uh, it turned out that Hector Lombard had accepted a record amount of punishment from Neil Magny. I believe Neil Magny uh, set, it was like third all-time in single-fight strikes or something like that, and and... I think the, maybe the most ever in a round. I can't, I can't remember exactly. Don't quote me, but it was, uh, it was, it was bad. And, uh, in this case, I think the criticism of Steve Percival was probably justified. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. We can do it again, brother. We can do it again, brother. They were just begging for it, weren't they? Ben reports. Chad Dunst uses Don Fry impression. Reports out this week that the UFC is angling toward an immediate rematch between Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz for UFC 200. Naturally. The spectral, most talked about, currently non-existent fight card ever in the history of the sport. Uh, seem to ruffle some feathers. Do you have a problem with it? You know, I won't say I have a problem in the sense that I'm outraged that it's happening. Uh, I don't really feel like I need to see it again, to tell you the truth. It is also one of those instant rematches that reeks of favoritism. Because you know if Nate Diaz had gone in there and got himself knocked out by one of Conor McGregor's left hands, there was no way the UFC was going to say, well, let's run that one back. There's no way would have even considered we'd have just moved on. Uh, and so when you, when you don't do the same thing for the other guy, when especially there's no controversy, it's not like the ending was weird or the judging was bad or there was an officiating mistake. There's absolutely no controversy. The guy who took it on short notice is the guy who won. Uh, there's no real reason except that it feels like you're saying we think the wrong guy won. So we're going to keep doing it until we get it right. Yeah, I mean, the weirdest part to me is doing it at 170 again. That just doesn't seem to make any sense at all to me. Uh, and I guess I don't hate, I guess I don't hate it as much as I probably should because Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz had an awesome fight the first time around. It was great to watch. You know, Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz will, uh, put up a, a hell of a hype job leading up to it that, that will be fun to watch. But I think you're right. Like, there's no way to justify this other than number one, it's going to make everyone probably the most money of any of the prospective opponents on the table for Conor McGregor right now. And number two, the wrong guy won that first fight because like I said, at the beginning of the show, 
The only real difference between Conor McGregor losing to Nate Diaz and Conor McGregor beating Chad Mendez when they fought is that the guy who came in on short notice won. Aside from that, kind of a replay of the same exact thing. Chad Mendez came in on two weeks notice, was beating Conor McGregor for the first round. Then he got super tired. He accepted some hard punches in the face and then he lost. Uh, so if you were, if you weren't clamoring to have Conor McGregor and Chad Mendez rematch and you are an MMA fan clamoring for Conor McGregor and Nate Diaz to rematch, you got some explaining to do, my friend. Yeah. Uh, I do think though that here is another situation where we look at a fight booking and see, all right, this is justifiable primarily based on how much money it's going to bring in for everybody involved. Right. Uh, and okay, I, I can see that angle. I, I'm sure Nate Diaz will not mind that angle. Uh, he, about time Nate Diaz gets paid in the UFC. And if this has had to happen, then I, I'm sure he doesn't really mind that. But I do wonder if it seems like it, the thing is Conor McGregor being like, Hey, I, I can't let this one slide. I have to go back out there and get a win. For one thing, don't do the MMA fighter thing where you act like beating the dude erases the time the dude beat you. Uh, you'll still just be one and one against Nate Diaz. Um, Oh, but, but I'm sure if Conor McGregor wins, they'll do a they'll do a trilogy, do a right? Match. You got to yeah. run it back again, right? Yes, it's yeah. only fair. Yeah, that's what we'll do. Is what's fair. Um, but the flip side is, what if you have if you're Conor McGregor and you have, without realizing it, committed yourself to just this doomed quest to beat up a hundred seventy pound Nate Diaz, uh, and it's just not going to happen for you. But you got it in your head that you have to do it. And what should be the time where you're cementing yourself as some great UFC featherweight champion ends up being the time that you're just, you know, chasing this dragon around for your own ego's sake. And next thing you know, you wake up in the morning, you lost two in a row, you're 0-2 against Nate Diaz, and you're thinking, God damn it, what did I do? Yeah, I think that it's that's probably the most surprising thing about this booking to me is that... Everyone had to work so hard to explain away that loss in the immediate aftermath of, of the first fight against Nate Diaz. You go into this one, eyes wide open, full training camp, everybody going for 170 pounds, and you lose again. That is a hard one to then turn around and, and, uh, undercut in the media or make it seem like it didn't, like it didn't matter. Uh, and so that makes it seem like a considerable risk for Conor McGregor. I, I, you know, after that first fight, I, we asked the question on the podcast, are we looking at a short window here for Conor McGregor's marketability? If you lose two in a row to Nate Diaz, that seems like you have done a lot of damage to, I, I would wager the cat, at least the casual fans willingness to pay 60 bucks to watch you because maybe more than any other fighter who, who has, had the, you know, played the kind of mind games and done the trash talk as Conor McGregor does, like his appeal and entire gimmick as a fighter is based around the idea that he might be the best fighter in the world. And if, if casual fans see you lose twice, I just don't see how that can continue to be your calling card. Yeah. Well, the other side of it is you're holding up the featherweight division for a little while while you do this. If you're planning on this 170 pound fight, uh, in July, and you got right now kind of a renaissance of contenders uh, all at once rising to the top at 145 pounds, and they're all going, wait a minute, 
why is the belt not available? This is a long time for the belt to be away and not because of injury or anything. You know, if it was Jose Aldo and he had tweaked his knee and the belt was gone this long, we'd have an interim title by now. We'd have yanked one of those out of the utility closet in the Zufa offices and, and thrown it on the line uh, just to give a little extra juice to a featherweight fight between now and then. But instead... You know, Conor McGregor gets to kind of make his own rules and do what he wants. And meanwhile, the, every, all the other featherweights have to sit around and wait until he decides to come back. It seemed to me like the thing to do here, if you want to earn a little goodwill back as, as Conor McGregor, is to tell him, all right, you know what? I'll vacate this belt while I handle this business with Nate Diaz, and then I'll come back and get it if I want it. Right. I mean, from today, it's only been a little bit over three months since he won the damn thing. So, you know, we've... Like you said, we've we've suffered through much much longer periods of inactivity with Jose Aldo being injured than than this. Although, uh, you figure if it's a, if it's another four months after this fight before he fights again, then yeah, you'll be looking at seven, maybe even ten months or something before he he he's ready to go. I feel like well, he's not going to turn around at UFC 201 and defend the featherweight title. That's true. After fighting yeah, Nate Diaz at 170 pounds. I mean, I honestly feel like if you're still trying to put together fights for UFC 200, uh. Why not just do an interim title fight between Jose Aldo and Frankie Edgar? Because then, you know, normally interim title fights are not my favorite. But in this case, then no matter what happens to Conor McGregor, you you kind of have a built-in storyline for, for something for him to go back to. And, you know, if he were to lose again to Nate Diaz, maybe that only, uh, uh you know, creates more intrigue around than a return to 145 pounds because then you might have a situation where people start looking at Jose Aldo and or Frankie Edgar and they're like, maybe they maybe these guys have a chance to win. Yeah, uh, I guess my confusion over it was when we talk about, hey, this is the fight that'll get mainstream fans talking, everybody will, or, you know, the people who don't watch this stuff. They'll show up for UFC 200 to see Nate Diaz and Conor McGregor do it again because it just it reached outside the bubble so well. To me, it felt like Conor McGregor had kind of reached that star level where almost any fight he does is going to do that. Plus, if you're already throwing it on UFC 200 where you're supposedly going to have a bunch of other awesome shit and it's going to be a big deal anyway, you don't necessarily need to do it for that reason alone. That it has to be a little bit more him calling the shot and really wanting to, to go back there and fight Nate Diaz again and, and prove something. Um, which, man, if you could go back to the UFC gym in Torrance and tell tank top wearing Conor McGregor at the, the hastily thrown together press conference that this is about your, this is going to set you on a chaotic quest uh, to just prove your worth against Nate Diaz over and over again, he would not have believed it. He would have looked disdainfully at you as if you were a TMZ cameraman and then gotten into a, a chauffeured SUV. Yeah, his manic laughter would have spilled out the drop top of his Bentley as he drove away. Uh, all right, Ben, well, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we will get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Well, Chad, I'm just saying, did you see the lightweight fight between Jake Matthews and Johnny Case on the main card of UFC Fight Night 85? Did I ever? Now, for one thing, as uh, my friend Brian Dermody pointed out on Twitter, uh, Jake Matthews versus Johnny Case is a real fight between a couple guys who, with names that sound like the protagonists in Elvis movies. Uh, but that turned out to be a hell of a fight, Chad. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. And you get to see, uh, maybe Jake Matthews is, is gonna be a guy to watch going forward. Johnny Case also looked good in that fight. But b did you also see the post fight, uh, 
little extra footage while they're waiting for them to come back from commercial so Bruce Buffer can announce the official decision, all that thing they do. And Johnny Case and Jake Matthews are standing there talking about the fight like it was an awesome movie that they both just saw. <laughs> no, I didn't see that. And it's just like we were punching each other in the face. You were kicking me in the stomach. Oh, that really hurt. Oh, man. And it's just like like a, just a, an enjoyable time that they both just had. Like they're having beers talking about the the rec league softball game that they they just came out on opposite sides of. I'm just saying that's how you know that you're basically tough as shit. When you go through all that and then you just want to have a, a a leisurely fun conversation about it. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, we will not be having a leisurely conversation after I beat you in that grappling match. No, no we won't. Because we cannot have an imaginary leisurely conversation. <laughs> ben, this week I'm just saying, doesn't it seem like the independent MMA scene has gone even crazier than normal these past couple of weeks? First of all, we had the announcement that Jason Mayhem Miller was going to uh, come out of retirement to fight uh, Luke Barnett at in Italy at something called like uh, Ventilator FC or... Nailed it. Varicose. FC, I can't. Somehow nailed it again. I can't remember what it, what, what it was called. But anyway, I, I have no idea if that's still happening because apparently Mayhem Miller can't walk the streets for 24 fucking hours without getting popped by the police. Uh, by the way, that dude from, uh, Vespa FC, the, that guy has, has proved himself to be a true piece of shit in the short time he has been on the scene. Uh, anyway, then you've got a potential bout between Tank Abbott and Dan Severn gets called off because uh, Tank Abbott can't pass his physical. Who'd have thunk it? I mean, really? You guys are going to give Tank Abbott a physical? <laughs> like, you might as well have Chuck Liddell try to pass a fucking calculus exam and then before you let him fight. You got the same chance of both of the guys passing those those tests. And then this past weekend, the monstrosity that was... You're going to have to help me here. You you are fight? Your fight? Er fight? All of them. Let's say all of them. Yeah, I don't know how you say it. But yeah, Chael Sonnen and Mike Bisping wrestle to a draw in a grappling match. Roy Jones Jr., if I read this correctly, was allowed to knock out a contest winner. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, you had the rapper Riff Raff, who, let's be honest, was the most likable thing that happened at, at Er Fight, uh, out there in his peach-colored uh, suit, a.k.a. Jody High Roller, a.k.a. the Peach Panther. Uh, interfering in a professional wrestling match between Kurt Angle and uh, Rey Mysterio. I don't know, Ben. I guess this week I'm just saying, what the fuck, you guys? Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to, uh, are we back into hashtag ain't shit going on? Or is there something happening? There'll be some shit going on. We'll hashtag some we'll, shit. We'll figure on. it out. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Doesn't Chuck Liddell have, like, an accounting degree or something? Yeah, but, I mean, come on. You might know a little math. That's what I'm saying. Calculus, though? I mean, addition and subtraction, yeah. Maybe the Iceman's got it dialed in, but you start throwing letters from the alphabet in there and shit? Come on. I think what we're talking about here is Chad Dennis's chances of passing his calculus exam. It's I just mean, the hardest thing you can think. Do I know what calculus is? No, not really. <laughs> I mean, I'm saying if, we're gonna, if you and Chuck Liddell square off in a calculus,